kind of feel like I have a full agenda. If you'd look on, look in your Bibles to James chapter 3, verses 13, all the way through verse 18, and then we'll go from the background back to the verse. Um, I think it's important tonight that we see a little bit of the background about who is the source of wisdom, what is wisdom, and I think as we contemplate this from Job chapter 28, different passages in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, as we see who the source of wisdom is, as we see what is wisdom, I think this passage is just going to be like a nice spare rib that's just going to fall right off the bone. That's the hopes here. So let me read this and you follow along. James chapter 3, verses 13. And this is going to be examination number 1, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? That's a question James is asking. And as we go through this outline, we will see that he's going to give us an examination. Who is the wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, conduct, let him show his works in meekness, in the meekness of wisdom. And so that'll be examination number one, verse 13. Examination number two will come in verse 14, 15, and 16. If you notice the word but, it's a contrast. So what he's going to give us an examination, number, number one examination is, is going to be, do you possess a changed life that represents wisdom? Verse 13, verse 14, but... If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions in your heart, this is examination number two, do not boast and be false about the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice, a disastrous life. We're going to look at Examination number one and two, and then verses 17 and 18 will be examinations number three. And it basically in verse 17, you'll notice the word but again, a contrast. Wisdom from below, verse 14, 15, and 16, but wisdom from above. God's wisdom is verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and of good fruits impartial and sincere, and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we see this wonderful passage, and as we move into it together, I want to just give you a couple thoughts. You know, one of the most remarkable stories about a display of wisdom is found in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 and 18, verses 16 through 28. It's a wonderful display of, of wisdom, Solomon is just getting the kingdom from his father David, and as he moves into that kingdom work of being the king of Israel, God comes to Solomon in a dream and says to Solomon, Ask me whatever you would ask me for whatever you would like, Solomon. And so Solomon, if you read 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon says, Lord, I'm but a child. Your people and your kingdom work is so great, but I am like a child. I don't know how to go in and come out. And essentially what he's saying to the Lord is, I am lost when it comes to your work, Lord. But he asked the Lord for wisdom. And the Lord said, because you have answered me in the way that you have, I'm not only going to establish you as the wisest man in Adam, 
the wisest man in your own generation and in the generations to come besides Christ, he says, I'm going to establish you in wisdom and I'm also going to give you all wealth and I'm also going to give you, um, I'm also going to give you all popularity, success. So here's Solomon, a display of God's wisdom. Let me just read you this abbreviated version of this story. There were two prostitutes who came before King Solomon. You might remember the story. This was the testimony they gave to Solomon in order for him to make a verdict or a judgment. They lived in the same house together. No one else lived there. Each of the women had a baby. The one woman who sunned, uh, the one woman's son died because she laid on him and suffocated him in the middle of the night. Then, upon realizing she suffocated her son, she then took her dead son and laid it upon the other prostitute's breast. When the other prostitute in the morning woke up to feed her son, she realized her son was dead. And upon examining, she realized what had taken place. And she said to the one woman, you've taken my child. Now this was the testimony that was given before Solomon. So after hearing this testimony, Solomon responds this way. Solomon confirmed all the details of the story. And then he asked for a sword. He then gave an order for the child to be cut in two. One half was to be given to the one woman and the other half was to be given to the other woman. Because the verdict of the king, the other woman pleaded. Because of the love that the one woman had for her son, she is saying, please, Lord, give her the child and do not put him to death. But the other woman said, he shall neither be mine nor yours. Divide the child. The king then said, give the one woman the child. And certainly do not put this child to death. She is the mother. All of Israel saw this story, saw the wisdom of Solomon, and they perceived the wisdom of God was in him. Now that's an amazing story. That is an amazing story about a display of wisdom. And as believers, people who are regenerated, made new, made new in Christ... We possess all wisdom. So as we're looking at this, Solomon's display of wisdom, let's, you can follow on your outline, let's look at what is the source of wisdom. You know, if we were to ask what is the source of wisdom and catch you off guard, you could easily say having money is a source of wisdom. You could come up with different thoughts. I mean, depending on how spiritual, spiritual you are and how focused you are of the Lord, sometimes people are not, sometimes people are not aware of where wisdom comes from. But look at Job chapter 28. You can keep your finger at James chapter 3, but look at Job chapter 28. Job chapter 28, verses 12 to 28. And I'm just going to read some selected portions of this, but I think you're going to find this very encouraging. What is the source of wisdom? Job chapter 28. Look at verse 12 with me. Now Job is making a case that God is the source of wisdom. Look at verse 12. The question is asked, but where shall we find wisdom? Where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Look at verse 13. It'll say the source is not from man 
or from the world system. Look at verse 13. Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. Does it come from nature, contemplating nature, going to Yosemite? Look at verse 14. The deep says, it is not mine. And the sea says, it is not with me. Look at verse 15. The source is not from wealth. It cannot be bought for gold and silver. It cannot be, it cannot be weighed for its price. Wisdom, where can it be found in verse 20? Look at verse 20. From where then, and if you hear this kind of exasperated tone, from where then does wisdom come from? Look at verse 20. And where is the place of understanding? Verse 23, God knows the way of wisdom. Look at verse 23. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. Look at verse 24. For he looked to the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. Verse 25. And when he gave to the wind its weight, and he appointed to the waters by measure. Verse 26. And when he made a decree for the rain, and a way for the lightning of the thunder. Look at verse 27. God established wisdom because he knew what would maintain his universe. And that would be wisdom. Verse 27, then he saw it, speaking of wisdom. It was in the mind of God. He saw it. He declared it. He established it. And he searched it out. Look at verse 28. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, this or that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. So there's some amazing things going on here, but I think as we look at James chapter 3, it is essential for us to get a grip of what is the source, where is the source of wisdom, and that is God and God alone. If you notice, James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom... Ask God, and he will give it without reproach. Now, let me tell you the beauty of this verse. God is not going to say, when you ask him for wisdom because you've screwed your life up and your life is a disaster, he is not going to look at you with reproach. And that word there means he's not going to look at you and say, and, and bring up, I told you, I told you how messed up you've been acting. He's not going to look at you with reproach. He will look at you with kindness and with gentleness if you come to him and you ask for wisdom. He will not, he will not give it to you with reproach. Proverbs 21, verse 30, it says this, if you don't have wisdom, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel, then you're against the Lord. <laughs> Let me repeat this again. Proverbs 21, 30, if you don't have wisdom... God's wisdom from above. If you don't have understanding, if you have no counsel, you're against the Lord. We're going to get into this. So here we see the source of wisdom is God and God alone. And then we're going to talk about very briefly here, what is wisdom? And I want to reflect on this passage. Continue to look at Job 28, 28, 28, 28. But, so what is wisdom? It's one of those things that, it's one of those things. Here, here's the first point of wisdom. Job 28, 28, 28. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord. And in fact, what this is telling us is this, is that we fear God. 
We fear God because of who he is. We fear God because he is a God that is a consuming fire. If you look at chapter 1 of Romans, chapter 1, all the way through chapter 3, you're going to look at the condemnation of man. And in fact, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, you're going to see that God's wrath, God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness and revealed against all ungodliness. And for three chapters, Paul's going to make a case of why God's wrath is coming and man is condemnable. And so when you look here, fearing God is necessary. Fearing him. I mean, even this past week, I have heard, I have heard seeds of so-called Christians seeding. Oh, you can't, that's not healthy to fear God. It's quite amazing and astonishing to me that somebody, quote unquote, is a Christian, because it is quite clear in the Bible, we are to fear God. In fact, it says in the book of Acts, don't fear man who can destroy your body. Fear God who can destroy your soul and send it to hell. It doesn't get any more clear. Fear God, that is the beginning of wisdom. And if you notice what Job is saying in Job 28, 28, he's saying, turn away from evil. There has to be not only fearing God, but an obedience. When you turn away from foolish evil, that is repenting, that's turning to the Lord in obedience. So what is wisdom? Fearing God and it's obeying him. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is Solomon writing this. Solomon is writing this in this whole book, 12 chapters. He is saying, vanity, vanity, says the preacher. And Solomon has tried all these different ways of life. And he is concluding with every single way of life that everything is vanity. There is vainness to it. It has no purpose to it. It's void. And so in the very end of the book, verse 13 and 14, chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. He's just spelt 12 chapters telling us how vain life can be without God. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. That is not that complicated. We fear him because of who he is. And it just doesn't mean fearing him like shaking out of our boots, although yes, it does. But we honor him and we exalt him. And we show that by hearing and obeying him. We hear and obey him and we do what he says to do because it protects us and it gives glory to him. That's what it does. So when it's all said and done, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Verse 14, for God shall bring every work into judgment. Want to know another reason to fear God? Everything that we do will be brought into judgment. Look at verse 14, every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Now, as Christians, we know what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to let God work all of this out. But Romans chapter 8 says, in Christ, there is now no condemnation. So these kind of verses, as strong as they are, all the more reason why you need to be in Christ. Outside of Christ, you'll rely on your own sources of wisdom. And so we need to see here that it's not just fearing God, but it's obedience to God. And then thirdly, I'd like you to look at Proverbs 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Nick read Proverbs chapter 1, 1 to 7. 
But not only do we fear God and obey him, as a result of fearing him and obeying him, God then gives us great success in life and salvation. Now that's a beautiful picture. We fear God, we obey God, and he gives us great success in our lives. Great success. Verse 7 of Proverbs chapter 1, For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools will despise wisdom and instruction. And then from verse 10 following, he's going to talk about the fool and what the fool does. He waits and he's looking for blood and he's looking for to do his evil deeds and he's waiting. But it just says, when you look at verse 10 of chapter 1, all the way through, he's going to talk about the consequences this fool will, will end up with, the consequences. And they're going to be noticeable because these fools, we can point them out and see their fruits. But here's the wise Christian. Here's the wise follower of the Lord. Look at verse 33 of Proverbs chapter 1. Verse 33, but whoever listens to me, you get it? We fear him, we obey. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. What a beautiful, beautiful verse that is. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 16, it says this. You disobey, you're going to die. You obey, you live. Now, I understand the struggle that we face when we hear these verses about fearing God, obeying God, and having great success in our lives. I, I understand that. That is how God is laying out wisdom and for us to get a grip of it. And you can see the need for Christ in all of this. So, what is the source of wisdom? We see it's God. What is wisdom? We see it's fearing God, obeying God, and having God give us great success in salvation. So let me look at James chapter 3 and move into these examinations. So James is requiring the believer to examine God's wisdom. And then asking ourselves, do we possess this wisdom? Because evidence number one, look at verse 13 with me. Evidence number one of a, of a changed life, evidence number one is having to ask ourselves, do I possess a Christian life, a changed life that displays with some remnants God's wisdom? Evidence to a changed life. Look what it says. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And so we see here from verse 13, we see evidences to a changed life. Verse 13, you'll notice two words for wisdom. One is wise and one is meekness of wisdom. At the very beginning of verse 13, wise. And then the other, in the end of verse 13, it says, in the meekness of wisdom. Well, when you look at and you're examining, do I possess God's wisdom? What you're asking yourself is, do I have understanding or a skill to function in life? Do I have a skill to function in life? That is the first word, that is the first, that is the first word for wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? That's the one that has a skill. He's able to function it's, it's action in a person's life that displays proper behavior. It's not just all that we know, but it's actually an application. 
The other word is Sophia. Maybe some of us have heard that word, and it means a superior intellect. And so you really need both. We have these changed lives. We, we have a life that is changed because of the regenerating work of the Spirit of God in our lives. And then God has given us his wisdom. And as we fear God and we obey God, we see great success and salvation in our lives. Now, is that you? Is that a picture of your life? Because evidence number one that we have to ask ourselves is, do I possess this? So does my life display a changed life? Look at verse 13b. Our lives should be, we should have excellent conduct, good and excellent conduct, beautiful conduct. We know what to do and we obey God in doing it. And in fact, not just in our good conduct, but it also at the end of verse 13 there, the, we look at the word um, presenting works. So we have this conduct and we have this work about us. Let him show his works or his deeds or his doing labor, his works. Let him show it in all humility, in humbleness. So we see here that we can see within ourselves, we can see, people can see it around us, we have a changed life. And at the end of verse 13 there, in humble or in the meekness of humility. I was thinking about this, in the meekness of humility. In other words, the more of God's, the more of God's truth that we have and the more understanding we have about it and the more we obey it, you know, the more information you, you have, um, the humble you are or you should be. Um, in humble, superior intellect, living under the fearing God and the responsibility to produce obedience. I mean, this is pretty weighty stuff right here. If you think about it, I was thinking about, do I fear God? Yes, I do. Am I always obedient? No, I'm not. Do I desire to be obedient every single day? And I think the tension here is, when we live under the fear of God and we live under the responsibility to obey God, what we need to understand here is that these kind of things will develop a humility in you. I mean, think about that. When, when you continue to look at who God is, I had a relative that came and lived at our house and one of the requirements, he was an adult, he was almost 50, and he lived with us for several years before he died. And while he lived with us, one of the requirements was, you're coming to church with us. And I remember he was all into it at the beginning, and as he would come to church and hear the word of God, I could literally see as he would be met with who God is, and I could see his absence of God, I could see within him his unwillingness to fear God and respect God and certainly to obey God. I could see it in his physical makeup. And he lived with us for several years, but at the end of it, it was disastrous because when he would go to church with us, I could literally see the fight that was going on. He would leave the room from the preaching. He was not being humbled under the fearing of God. He was not being humbled under the responsibility to be obedient. Does that not humble?
to know that we should fear God because of who he is, the creator that speaks and all is created? Do we not fear God and, ten, and, and have that tension of responsibility to obey him? Be holy for I am holy, the book of Peter says. Be holy for I am holy. Talk about a responsibility to be holy. Be holy for I am holy. That's an amazing word of God. Does this not develop a tension in us to cry out more to Christ? And it should. So examination number one, do we see a life like this? Do we see a life that is saying, Lord, I want to fear you, obey you, and enjoy your successes, your salvation in my life? Or is your life just a disaster? Do you keep asking people the same thing? They keep telling you the same thing, and you keep doing the same thing. Now, I want to be compassionate and merciful. We want to be helpful if that's you. We're, we're, we don't want to give you reproach. We don't want to say, what do you do? Come. Come so we can help you. But you need, you need to examine yourself. And this goes to examination number two. So we've seen examination number one, evidences of a changed life. James then turns the corner and he uses the word but in verse 14. James, James 14, 15, and 16, it says examination number two, the marks of ungodly wisdom or marks from wisdom from below. This is what James is talking about. In other words, he's just talked about what wisdom is and now he's going to say but... If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and notice where that comes from, in your heart. Notice that? And so when you look, where does an unwise lifestyle come from? It comes from a heart that is ruled by self-centeredness. A heart that is ruled by self-centeredness. Now, as you mature in Christ, I think one of the struggles that you'll face is you see your self-centeredness. It disgusts me when I see my self-centeredness. And I see it. And I think the more I live with Christ and the more I see his righteousness and the more I see my lack of it and the more I see my own selfish ways. But the examination that James is giving in chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16 is this person that doesn't have a concept and in fact, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, this is a life ruled by self-centered ambition. You're just jealous out of everything that takes place. You have a jealousy that rules you. You have a selfish ambition that rules you. Your competition level is just off the charts. And really what James is pointing out here is because you have an absence of God and you in your self-centeredness rules. And so as you look here, you're unwilling to recognize. Look at verse 14. So you have this bitter jealousy, and you need to examine this. You have this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, and, you, and, and James says this, do not boast and be false to the truth. And in other words, what James is saying right here is this, do not boast and be false about the truth. Don't position yourself in a way where you're unwilling to recognize your self-centeredness. Listen, people are trying to point this out to you. 
God's word is pointing this out to you. People are telling you, your spouses are telling you, your friends are telling you, you're living a self-centered, ambitious lifestyle full of jealousy and it's destroying you. Stop it. And in fact, what verse 14 is saying, that you're living a life of deception and you're not willing to come to the truth. Let me read verse 14 again for you. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, look, at this isn't talking about the person that's tempted with this or even falls to this. This is a person that's ruled in their heart by self-centeredness. And instead of doing anything but repenting and fearing God and obeying him, they just boast about their lifestyle. They just boast about it and they're false to the truth of the fact that their selfish lifestyle is destroying them. Verse 16, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. And so what he's saying there is this. Number one, he's saying, where does this lifestyle come from? Self-centeredness. Where does this unwise life come from? Self-centeredness. And if you look at verse 15, he's going to point out, this is not wisdom, but it reflects a wisdom apart from God. And in fact, he makes categorically, he makes a distinction of where this is coming from. And look at verse 15 with me. It comes from the world system. And isn't it interesting for us when we see the world and its system, and, you know, it's really common to hear phrases and seeds like this. Your problem is you don't love yourself too much. Now, I can't help you to understand this clear enough. That is worldly. That is natural. That is from the pit. You naturally love yourself. And when Christ has regenerated your heart and saved you because you feared him and obey him, and he gives you great success and salvation, when you get to that point right here, you, you, you realize I have to pick up my cross daily. I have to deny myself. I have to move away from selfishness. Godly wisdom, we're going to see in just a moment, godly wisdom is moving away from self and moving to service. And we're going to see that from verse 17 and 18 in just a minute. But you'll notice here in verse 15 that ungodly wisdom comes from the world system. And we in the church need to be very careful about those things that add into the church. It's natural. Do what feels good. Make yourself happy. These are not Christian terms. These are worldly terms. These are terms that feed the natural processes. In fact, the word there, when you look at um, they're worldly and, na and natural, it just means unspiritual. We are spiritual people. We're not natural people. We fight against the natural. And praise God, we have the resources by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, fellowship in His body. We have the resources to be spiritual people and to be successful spiritual people. And so when we allow the world, the natural, which is just, that's where the drive comes from, the natural, the passions of the flesh. Paul is saying to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.1, I can't even hardly speak to you because you are just so fleshly. Worldly, natural, and then he says demonic. Now you might be saying, what? Demonic, resembling the devil. Remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples and he said this to them, the son of man needs to go into Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer. And not only will I suffer, but I will be killed. But I'm going to raise from the dead. 
Now, Peter didn't understand what was going on, and so he grabbed his Lord and pulls him to the side in a very condescending way, says, no, Lord, that's not going to happen today. That's demonic thinking. (laughs) You can't say it any other way. That is demonic thinking, Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. Get behind me, Satan. You'll hear Timothy, or you'll hear Paul tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1, he says, as people have snuck into the church and as they're spreading false doctrines, he says, those are doctrines of demons. Very interesting. And so we see here, as we have examination number two, under examination number two, the marks of ungodly wisdom, we have to ask ourselves, is my life being possessed with an ungodly wisdom? I can't even see the line of godly wisdom and ungodly wisdom. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm scared because all I see is this ungodly wisdom that's there. There is hope for you. There is hope. Christ is our hope. And so when we look at this, we can see where does the unwise, where does the unwise lifestyle come from? We're gonna, we've just looked at it's unwilling to recognize self. We've looked at this is not wisdom. And the result of ungodliness, this is just amazing. Look at verse 16. The result of this ungodly lifestyle. You want to stay in this lifestyle? Because here's the result of it. Here is the result. Look at verse 16. The result of this lifestyle is where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disaster. Or the word there is disorder. And every vile practice. And so here's the deal you will continue to live a confused life, a life of chaos, a life of disruption. And the other part of that where it says every evil, vile practice, everything that you do outside of Christ and everything you do outside of God's wisdom will be foul business, everything. There can be no gain that comes from it. And when you go into eternity and the judgment is there, it's going to be a sad day. So, examination number one, do you see a changed life? Do you see wisdom evident in your life? Examination number two, it's really clear. Is your life marked by ungodly wisdom? Is it marked by, is it marked by a heaven, is it marked by a wisdom from below? And here is our last examination, number three. And I'll just breeze by this. Examination number three. Marks of a heavenly wisdom. You'll notice verse 17 and 18. He uses that word but again. He does a lot of contrasting. Is your life marked by this? Or is is your life marked by that? It's a contrast. That's what the word but does. So is it marked by heavenly wisdom? But the wisdom is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so as we kind of wind down here, let me just introduce you to examination number three. It comes from a regenerated life. This is what James is trying. This This is James' emphasis, is for us to examine. This is why he's making these contrasts. He wants us to examine. He wants us to test. He wants us to see where we stand. And so it comes from a regenerated life. And we know from Titus 3.5 that a regenerated life 
It's not something you can do to gain it. It's given to us by the mercy of God. It's given to us by the Spirit of God. And you might be here today saying, I need this regenerated life. And we would just encourage you to fall on, the, on your face before God. Come to Christ and ask him to save you and to give you this wisdom. And it starts with fearing him and obeying him and enjoying the success that he wants for you. So this wisdom from above can be enjoyed by those who have a regenerated life. That's why he says in verse 17, it's pure. It's not carnal, it's pure. That's what it means, free from carnality. We understand the secret behind this. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. Every day we get to wake up and his, new, his mercies are new every morning. We get to be forgiven of our sins and then practice that right behavior before God. And we do it with pure motives, free from carnality, a life that wants God. Every day I want God. I don't know how long I've been saved. It's somewhere around four decades but you know, I've come to a point, I don't even trip on that anymore. I just want Christ. I don't even know dates. I don't even know the experience of, I just want Christ. And I want to live a way that I am free from carnality. And I see my own sin, but I desire Christ. And so he says here, what wisdom is, is first pure. It's a pure motive. You want Christ. And so... You, receive, you see your, your behavior respectful and you see your conduct pure. You, you want to have pure motives. Secondly, in verse 17, it's peaceable. And that James a lot of times reflects on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And when you read peaceable here, that word peaceable is found in Matthew 5, 9, a peacemaker. You know that you have peace with God because of Christ. You know that you're no longer an enemy of God. You have peace with God because of Christ. And so as a result of that, the wisdom that you have in your life is that you want this calm between you and your friends. You want this calm in your family. It, it means calmness between nations, calmness in communities, calmness around people, calmness between people. You're that peacemaker. That's a sign of wisdom from above. Pure, peaceable, look at verse 17, humble. You're calm during difficult times and persecution. You're gentle, you're humble. Verse 17, look at willing to yield. You possess an ability about you and a sense about you and a behavior about you where you're reasonable. You can hear both sides. This is willing to yield or be reasonable. You can hear both sides of an issue to make a proper determination. And if you notice here, when I'm talking about peace and gentleness and willingness, these all have to do with relational aspects. It's not about inward self. It has to do with the relational things that we're involved with on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's in our family, whether it's in our neighborhoods, whether it's in our jobs or our business ordeals. Peaceable, gentle, willingness. That willingness to yield. This kind of behavior is worked out in these relationships. Full of mercy, verse 17. Full of mercy. Your mind is full of compassion and kindness towards others. 
you're willing to reach out for those people who have a need. It's a simple illustration, but I was at a Giants game. I might have mentioned this before, but this poor lady was sitting down in her seat. She had her hot dog and she had her beverage right here and, and she had a hat on and she was discombobulated. And when she sat down, no kidding, the hot dog just flipped off of her arm and just splatted right on the ground. And for some reason, only because I'm a foodie, I looked at her with such compassion. I thought, you poor lady. And in fact, I went over about 10 seats and I said, hey, just hold on a minute. I picked up her hot dog. I ran down into the concession stand and said, this poor lady just flopped her hot dog off her arm. Can you help her? I was going to pay for it, but they said, hey, we are willing happily to do this. They gave me a hot dog. I brought it up to her. What a silly illustration. But sometimes it's the small things. Sometimes it's just the ability to to see, you know, when you think about mercy and compassion, they go together. You need to be compassionate, feel what people feel, so then you can be merciful to them. I think mercy and compassion go together. And I don't think it's a small thing. Her, her, she just brightened up. So I think we should do more of those kind of things. Full of mercy, good fruits. What comes out of you is good fruit. I mean, when you learn to fear God, obey God, and enjoy his successes, the fruit that you will bear, the fruit that comes out of you, will be good works. You will bear good fruits. Impartial. You're uncompromising and committed to the gospel. Look at verse 17. You're impartial. That means you're not biased. You're, you don't have favoritism. You're not unfair. You're committed to being uncompromised. If I do this, then I do this. And you're impartial and uncompromising. That's a part of wisdom. And then lastly, almost lastly, sincere. And this, just word, this word means you... This word has to do with being a hypocrite. You're sincere. You're not the hypocrite. You're not playing the part. You're not the actor. In fact, I, I believe it's the Latin term playing the part or playing the man. And that's what hypocrites do. They look a certain way on the outside, but inwardly, inwardly they do not represent what we see outward. And so we're sincere people, genuine people. We're not hypocritical people. And then lastly, in verse 18, it says, you have true righteousness and reap a harvest. Now quickly, I'll just mention this. These terms in verse 18 have to do with agricultural and in fact, it talks about having this harvest of righteousness. And I know the other day, I just ate some beautiful, beautiful figs from somebody's fig tree. Recently, someone gave us some um, apricots from their apricot tree, but it's harvest time. And then you have this big harvest. You pull it in. You pull this harvest in. And so what this is telling us is that in verse, in verse uh, 18, it says... And we have this harvest of righteousness. Now we know that Christ's righteousness motivates us. And because of his righteousness, we are now motivated to share, not only share his righteousness, but to be righteousness as we represent God. And so what this is talking about, we live lives that have this harvest of righteousness. It says having a life and having a, har a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. And so... You can see in the meantime, as we keep having this harvest, we do it in peace. And then it says this at the very end. 
And by the way, you can see what a difficult verse this is to translate. I did a lot of reading on this, and so what you're hearing is from the commentaries. And so at the end here, we have this harvest of righteousness. It's sown in peace by those who make peace. That's who we are. We have a wisdom from above. Praise God. Well, let me pray for us, and we'll sing one more song and be done. There's a lot here, Lord. And I just pray in the midst of all the, all the distractions that we would have a grip, a grasp of examination number one. Do we see a changed life? Examination number two, do we see more of an ungodly wisdom in us? Or examination number three, do we see your wisdom? This fearing God, obeying God, and enjoying the fruit of success in your salvation. To God be the glory. We're thankful for Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.